0: promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. And I'm proud to call it home. This is my country. And I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Corday. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy.
1: And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. It, It seems trite this morning to say... As I always do, there are plenty of folks out there trying to inflame your passions. I think this week we saw that what happens when passions are inflamed. We saw 14 bombs mailed through the United States postal system, and thank God none of them went off. We weren't so lucky yesterday in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where 11 innocent souls. Praying together, a pair of brothers, a husband and wife, sitting together in a synagogue were murdered um, because of inflammatory language and and people who hear those voices. So it's even more important for us to calm it down um, and to look at what I try to do for you, which is to inform you, to give you information so that you can enable that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act within the bounds on those judgments. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers, and the numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs our attention, and how to prioritize necessary changes. And when it comes to our health care, oh God, there are more numbers than there are solutions. $200 billion with AB dollars is what is the estimated cost of California Senate Bill 562, the universal single-payer health care system you hear uh, gubernatorial candidate Gavin Newsom advocate for. The number would double the current state budget. We talked about this when we were talking about the propositions, the 2018-2019 budget is $201 billion with a B, dollars. 18%, that's the estimated increase in the cost of health care in California if 562 were to become law. And, frankly, I think that's an underestimation. But we're really fortunate today not to have my amateur view of what that estimate is, but to have with us again, Dr. Robert Pearl, the author of Mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare and why we're usually wrong. And before we begin, uh, before we began, Dr. Pearl and I were talking on the phone about his um, travel itinerary. He's been to uh, Brisbane and Rio and all over the country and what he's hearing internationally as well as within the United States is the same set of problems, availability, cost, access, and, and the need to use new methods and new ways of thinking um, in order to fix this problem. So um, a universal health care system is not a magic pill. During our July 29th broadcast, Dr. Pearl and I talked about the future of health care in America. How do we make sure that we're going to get world-class health care that we think we are without breaking the national piggy bank? It's a formidable challenge, but Dr. Pearl is a leader in helping to address it. He's the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, and the former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Group. In these roles, he's led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser members on the West and East Coasts. Recently named one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders, Dr. Pearl is an advocate for the power of integrated, prepaid, technologically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. He serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, and is on the faculty of Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he teaches a course on strategy and leadership, and lectures on, the, on information technology and healthcare policy. As I said earlier, in 2017, he authored a book called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. It's a Washington Post bestseller that offers a roadmap for transforming American healthcare. If you haven't bought it yet, I urge you to do so. It's available at Amazon, and all the proceeds benefit Doctors Without Borders. From 2012 to 2017, Dr. Pearl served as the Chairman of the Council of Accountable Physician Practices. Which includes the nation's largest and best multi specialty medical groups and has participated in the bipartisan Congressional Task Force on Delivery System Reform and Healthcare IT in Washington. So, Dr. Pearl, thank you for taking the time out of your weekend to continue our conversation with the listening audience. And we're going to Good morning. Uh,
2: Thank you so much. yeah, all of our sympathies have to go to the families of the victims of these horrendous and horrific shootings. It's just so overwhelming to think about some of the craziness happening in the United States today.
1: Yes, um, and and it's. I think it's. It's all of us have to be careful about the language we use because we understand there are people who hear voices um, yes. among us. Um, and, and, and maybe
2: we can focus on health and in focusing on health, help people to become uh, both physically and emotionally and psychologically uh, more whole. And maybe that will help uh, bring uh, decency back across the United States.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. I think making people healthy um, and whole is extremely important. But let's pivot to that August Forbes blog that you wrote, which is entitled, Will Single-Payer Be the Demise of Governor Gavin Newsom? And, and talk about um, the allure and the illusion of the concept of single-payer health care. You know, I agree with you that unless ca- unless California falls into the ocean before November 6th, Gavin Newsom will be the next governor. And, 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 but I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that his uh, endorsement of single-payer health care is comes from a point of integrity rather than a point of political convenience?
2: I think there's a lot of different interpretations, even with Medicare for All, coverage for all, all the language that's out there. I think his intent is probably the right direction that we should make health care universally available and affordable. And in those ways, uh, it's very positive but as you're saying, the specifics of, and I will focus on one particular part because it's so, it's my, it is the clearest one, which is the so-called Medicare for All. Take traditional Medicare, and I use the word traditional because traditional Medicare means you go to any doctor you want to see, he or she does whatever they want to do, and they bill for it, and they get reimbursed by the federal government as different than Medicare Advantage, which we could talk about later if you would like. Yeah, I think we should. Um, Yeah, you're a businesswoman. Yep. And as you know, every action you take is not a single step, but it involves reaction and changes. And I think that this is the oversimplification you've alluded to in your comments about the Medicare for All proposition. And what I mean by that is the following. If you look at the dollar estimates that have come from everywhere, from Senator Sanders, who introduced it in the last election, to the California legislation that analyzed a similar bill in the past, to the current one you're looking at, most of the economic consequences vary by one factor. How much are you going to pay? Medicare, and I'll use, again, use the phrase traditional Medicare, fee-for-service Medicare, pays 90% of the actual cost of health care, and it's offset by the commercial, the employer-based plans paying about 120%. If you assume that Medicare for all will now pay everyone 90%, the economics work. The challenge is that that's a very simplistic view, because how will doctors respond? And remember, for physicians, for businesswomen like yourself, for retail, about half of the cost is overhead.
1: Mm -hmm. So when you
2: lower payments by 10%, you really lower take-home income for physicians by 20%. How many people can... Accept a 20% reduction in their income and still maintain the lifestyle that they've had. Very few. Mm-hmm. So to assume that doctors will just simply say, okay, I'll take 20% less money and hospital 20% less money and everyone will take that and not do something different is naive. And that's how I tend to view Medicare for all. It is a very nice concept. But when you start to look at second- and third-order outcomes, what's going to happen is that physicians are going to do more. Now, I mean, that makes sense to listeners to say, what do you mean they're going to do more? They're not going to find more sick people. But what you find is that there's lots of areas of medical practice for which there's a gray zone. The amount of care you provide isn't clearly better or worse than what we see in back surgery in knee surgery, in cardiac stenting procedures. We can see it in a lot of places, even in cancer chemotherapy, is that as the incentives align up in a fee-for-service world to do more, that's what happens. And that's what we'd see in a Medicare for All. Prices would come down. Utilization would go up. Costs would rise, as you say, significantly. Taxes would have to go up. Taxes would be resisted by many legislative forces, access that would therefore decrease. You can see the multiple steps that would likely happen. And in the end, I think most people understand that as nice as the concept is, it simply can't be reality. You and I talked about the fact I view most people as wanting to have, I'll use this phrase, a painless pill, and there are no painless pills when it comes to the economics of American, actually, as you said, global health care today.
1: I, I completely agree with you. And I think, as, as it's called, Senate Bill 562, um, you know, it sounds so really nice. Um, but here's, the, here's the, the rub. If that bill were to pass, there would be no private insurance in California. Kaiser has said they didn't don't think they could continue to provide care in this marketplace if that were to be passed they would eliminate they would basically confiscate um, your Medicare dollars they would confiscate um, Medicaid dollars and they would confiscate all private insurance um, and and direct those corporate dollars into the state coffers and then have state health care coordinators redistribute it. Is that, I mean, I don't even think it's governmentally possible.
2: Yeah, I, I, that's why I say I don't think that it's governmentally possible. You know, there's a piece I'm writing uh, this week from Forbes where I talk about the fact that campaign promises are just that, are promises, they rarely become a reality Because in translating a concept into practice, you have to deal with, as you say, the realities of doing so. There will not be enough dollars at the state level to fund the cost of health care unless you simply impose a dramatic reduction in fees for doctors and hospitals. And what will happen next is that access will become more problematic. You'll see actually a new kind of private insurance. It's what you see in most other countries that have a government-run program. As you say, I was just in hang, Rio. Hang on to that thought. The-
1: hang on to that thought. we got to go take a commercial break. We'll be back okay. in just a moment to explain how these new, how, how, Hybrid systems emerge from government-run healthcare.
0: Now back to reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on eight hundred and sixty AM. The answer,
1: and we're back with Dr. Robert Pearl talking about the myth, the attraction, the illusion of single-payer health care. And as we went to break, we were just about to talk about what happens when you have a government-run system that isn't sustaining, sustaining itself and people begin to lose access. And Dr. Pearl, you were about to say, we get hybrid systems that way.
2: So I was just in uh, Brazil. I was speaking at a uh, global insurance conference, and in Brazil, they have about 200 million uh, citizens, three quarters of whom receive a government plan, and one quarter buy a private plan. What's the reason? What's the difference? The delays in care in the public plan. The problems of getting appointments in the pro, in the public plan, the bureaucratic red tape that one has to go through in a public plan, figuring out how the government addresses the insufficiency of resources to pay for the care involved. And so those who can afford it by a private plan, about one quarter of the citizens, they have the kind of access that most of us would want in the united states today they have access to the best hospitals that are often unwilling to take the government plan because it does not pay them the adequate dollars they need to provide the level of quality that they require that is the natural outcome when you have a plan that is going to make that's going to squeeze the providers of care and make it more difficult for them to meet the demands on a daily basis, alternatives will pop up. I mean, we call it Medicare for all, but how about if you called it Medicaid for all? Because we have that in California today. We have a system that is underfunded, and anyone who wants to believe that the people who get care through Medicaid are receiving the same degree of access and quality and uh, ability to achieve the best outcomes take another look and my prediction is that if medicare for all became the rule it would slowly devolve into the equivalent of medicaid for all because i want to stress the fact once again the reason medicare works so well is that the underpayment that is made at the federal level is offset by the higher payment put upon businesses to make up for the difference. And as soon as you eliminate that public, that commercial, that private coverage, and simply pay at the lower level, you now create a system that can't deliver the care, the access, the quality that each of us want. And that's, as you say, it's like a balloon. Squeeze it in one place, it will pop out in another. And what we'll see is the return of private coverage, but not the coverage we have today that ensures the vast majority of Americans, but care that is now going to be restricted ever so much more to simply those who can pay the most, which is not going to be the middle class.
1: I completely agree with you. I've been calling it Medicaid for all since uh SB 562 was was first uh introduced in the state senate. And and I think one thing that we ought to make very clear is that the un, unlike Obamacare this type of plan, this so-called whether you want to call it Medicare for all or Medicaid for all has um it, it is for unlike Obamacare, this impacts the half of the U.S. population that has employer-based insurance. You know they don't they don't realize the extent to which I think many people do not uh, understand the extent to which it would change the way that they experience health care because today they have corporate insurance. And would you agree that that's uh, going to be a major, it will become a major stumbling block as people begin to realize what it will cost them.
2: As you said, the, I'll call it the naive, and by that I don't mean that it's wrong, I just mean that it stops analyzing what's going to happen next. view is that in Medicare today, access is very similar to what it is in an employer-based program. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is that in a Medicare for All, that one would see that level of care that's provided today continue into the future. And as you pointed out, that's not what's going to happen. The total dollars will not be adequate to provide that level of care. And what we will see... Is a secondary system evolved so that the, those who had had employer-based coverage who now only have this new Medicare, Medicaid for all, will find themselves being moved to the back of the line, whereas those who have approaches and coverage that reimburse at full cost will be moved to the front. Uh, we've actually even seen this in America. I remember uh, an organization, I won't name it, that used to have two doors, one for patients with true um, fee for service type reimbursement, and one for patients who were contracted through a uh, prepaid type of capitated program so that doctors did not receive the added dollars when they took care of them. Guess what happened? You come through the door in a FIFA service world. You move to the front of the line. If that phone was busy, no one answered the other phone. If the appointments were not available in the first one, the second one certainly moved to the back of the line until the first line got filled. It's like a, a, a nightclub where you have some people who get brought in ahead of others. This is the two-tier system if we think the challenges of healthcare today both psychologically and medically are problematic when our nation moves into a two-tier system and by the way I want to emphasize this to the listeners Medicaid is a two-tier system but that's not what most people listening to the show have today there is no two-tier system whether their coverage is employer-based whether it's through the health care exchanges, whether it's through Medicare, they are treated relatively All the right, same on based on up. medical priority. And if we're going to go. Shift that, you're going to have a a two a tier program, and no one wants to be the second tier.
1: And you're absolutely right. And we're going to go take a quick commercial break, and we're going to come back, finish this up, and then we're going to talk some
0: politics. <laughs> You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
1: And we're back with Dr. Robert Pearl. And as we went to break, um, we were you, were you were saying that we don't have a two-tier system now uh, between those people who have corporate insurance and those people who have um, government plans um, or Medicare. Um i am gonna the the papers the newspapers in California would beg to differ with you um to the sense that Medicaid patients in this state already complain um that they don't get the same level of service that they have that second door. Um, And if you add another 2.7 million people who don't currently have health insurance and or who are undocumented and therefore not eligible, how much worse would it get, Uh, given that that would increase the population by at least 10% um, that would have to be covered in California? But uh, Medicaid already does not reimburse adequately to be attractive uh, in a fee-for-service world.
2: No, that's exactly what I said. I, yeah. I, I was differentiating the uh, Medicaid from all of the other insurance, from Medicare, from from employer-based, and from individuals purchasing on the exchange. As I said, Medicare today only pays about 90%, but it covers... And again, as a businesswoman, you'd be very familiar with the <laughs> term. The so-called variable expense. It just doesn't yep. cover the fixed expense. Medicaid doesn't cover either in California, which is why hospitals don't accept patients, except in the very emergent situations, who have Medicaid insurance. It's why doctors, so many doctors, won't take patients who have Medicaid. They will take Medicare now, but... As you pointed out, as you expand the number of people, unless you're willing to raise taxes, and I think that most in California would not like to see that happen. You know, of course, if it's someone else who's going to pay more taxes, everyone's okay with that. But as soon as you start to realize, as you pointed out, the magnitude of increased cost that it's going to be, what you're going to see is that the reimbursements that drop, and rather than physicians being willing to continue to take patients, they will if they have an opening. They will to fill an extra spot, but more and more they'll start taking people who have the new, the next generation of private insurance. And it will come about unless we think that the government's going to outlaw private insurance completely, which I think, first, they won't do, and second of all, it's probably not legal to uh, implement and that's what people will find. All of a sudden, having the surgery, the elective surgery they want, six months or nine months, they'll show up with a problem at uh, the emergency area, not a life-threatening one, and somehow they'll be delayed in their treatment. They'll call the doctor's office. They'll find, the doctor's assistant will ask, what kind of insurance do you have? And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any opening for several weeks, several months, or we simply can't take you. This is what's happened in every other country. Now, in a lot of other places, they've had it for a long time. They're used to it. They accept it. In some other places, what they've done is they've taken, like the Scandinavian nations, very high tax rates, tax rates that I think would not be amenable for most Americans. Uh, But if you look at the places that have not done one or the other, what you see is you see a two-tier system of care, The people at the lower tier just simply say that's the way it is, that's the way that it's always been. Every once in a while you'll have a political response to it. But the United States, I don't believe, would accept that for 80 90% of the people. They're used to getting good health care. They're working jobs. They qualify through Medicare. They purchase insurance. And they believe that they should have access the high-quality medical care, both for emergent and for routine care, and we'll see that evolve. And you know what the I- try to fund it by yeah. the government.
1: And you know what the irony is of, of SB five sixty two, the only people because it it assumes that they could capture all of the Medicare dollars flowing into California, but uh, redirecting them from you know, from the people who, from Medicare recipients into this pool. But the problem is that Medicare requires a premium payment for parts B and D, okay, that um, that is in federal law. And so it would end up in this system that only seniors would be forced to pay for their health care. So, uh, you know, my view is that if, if Gavin Newsom really were to pursue this particular plan, which he's promised the California Nursing Association, and I'm sure you have some thoughts about the SEIU unionized nurses, um, that, that in my view, this could become his Gray Davis moment. You know, we, we could see another governor's term truncated if people really began to understand what is meant by single-payer healthcare in California.
2: Well, I, again, I'm not an expert like you are around <laughs> all the politics. I think the person who will be the next governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, is already recognizing that and backing away from some of the comments that he made a year ago. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, and I go back to the same thing. Political promises are promises to get votes. I think the reality of governing and the reality of having a balanced budget, which by law states must have, the federal government doesn't have to have it, the states have to have, I think the reality of having to tell people who voted for you, now I'm going to raise your taxes, I think reality will overcome the promises that were made. I am very doubtful that regardless of what happens in this upcoming election, that four years from now California will have... A true Medicare for all. I don't doubt that there will be some expansion of coverage. I do believe that the legislature would like to find ways to provide uh, medical care to some people who today can't obtain it. But all the idea of a massive reform, taking all the dollars away, giving it to the government, creating a fee-for-service, uh, government-reimbursed Medicare system for everyone in California, uh, that's not going to happen, Joyce. Over the next four years, I, uh, I would just be shocked a media coming to the earth has about the same likelihood of, make, of uh, being reality. I,
1: I completely agree with you because um, it's, it's unrealistic, it's not unaffordable, and it would, it would doom Gavin's political career, and he has higher aspirations. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about another political bugaboo, pre-existing conditions.
0: You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
1: And we're back with Dr. Robert Pearl, the author of Mistreated. Um, And as we went to break, we were were just finishing up with the idea that while single payer health care sounds good, it's. Not something that, as the doctor said, there's a greater likelihood of a meteor striking earth than um, single-payer health care coming to California in the next four years. But right now on the campaign trail, you know, they, whether you're Republican or Democrat, everybody is embracing this protection for pre-existing condition coverage. And, you know, it's it's... It, well it's a it's a talking point you know it's it's uh I have a theory that talking points are are um you know ap- advertising slogans repeated often enough to make people believe them um and and the concept is the Democrats are saying um that republicans want to strip them strip people of their pre-existing condition coverage and um uh, And the Republicans are saying, no, those Democrats don't want to pay for it, et cetera. In any case, I don't think pre-existing conditions are going anywhere, nor do you. But let's start talking about the facts. When we're talking about pre-existing condition coverage, you know, um, everybody's ears perk up. But what we're really talking about is pre-existing condition coverage under Obamacare, covers about 10 million people when people on Medicare and on uh, traditional um, employer-based insurance um, are not impacted by by pre-existing condition clauses, except in very rare and very limited circumstances. And so, you know, as a physician, um, how do you feel about the, the use of something that's an important part of health insurance and health coverage as a political talking point.
2: I completely agree with you, Joyce, <laughs> that there's so much misconfusion, and as a physician, I dislike the politics that have permeated throughout this debate because we're missing the real Issue. There is a real issue, Joyce, and that is that the cost of health care is rising more rapidly than the ability to pay, and it's rising more rapidly, as I wrote and mistreated, because the system is broken. It does not have the kind of business structure. It's not integrated. It's paid in this piecemeal fee-to-service basis, not in a capitated form. The technology is left over from the last century at best. There's not a structure that allows us to provide care. We see egregious pricing by drug companies. And we see lack of transparency at the hospital level. We see too many specialists on the primary care. I can go on and on and on, but you're right. In the voting world, it has to all be simplified. And you are absolutely correct. The Affordable Care Act promised people who are individuals, and that's the point that you're making, that they could obtain health care at an equivalent cost even when they had pre-existing conditions. As you pointed out, for insurers, particularly those with more than 100 employees, that already is and has always been part of the equation that sits in place. And so this fear... So I go another level, Joyce, and I say, why does this fear exist? Because, as you say, most people are not going to lose their coverage in an employer-based program because they have a pre-existing condition. I think it's two things. I think most people are afraid they either, number one, they can't get the health care because they can't afford it. We're seeing a dramatic rise in out-of-pocket expense. We're seeing health care costs being the leading cause of um, people having to declare bankruptcy in the United States today. So that's one thing. And the second thing they're afraid of is that their employer is going to pull away the coverage that they're getting, which is a second component of the Affordable Care Act, particularly, again, for large employers. And that's not going to change. But it's that pervasive fear that I will not be able to get the care that I need, and maybe even more importantly, my family needs. I think that being tapped on by politicians, and like yourself, I am offended by the fact that they're using scare tactics to try to obtain votes. You're seeing it across the political spectrum. I don't see one party versus another party as owning all of the misconceptions. I think the time has come for America to face the fundamental problem, which is that the American healthcare system was designed in a different time when we had acute disease, chronic disease, when costs were three or five or 10% of the GDP, not 20% of the GDP, when the things that we could do were a limited number, when life expectancy was 67 years, not 82, we're seeing a very different world and we've retained the structure of the past. I believe Joyce, and you're an expert like I, I am, am, that when you have industries that charge too much for the value created, and that's how I see American healthcare today, most expensive in the world, lastly eleven industrialized nations and life expectancy, childhood mortality, etc. That that is ripe for disruption. And I'm looking at big businesses to disrupt healthcare, the Amazon Berkshire, JP Morgan Chase, possibly disrupting it, offshore influences. I think American healthcare needs to change. And the discussion of today, whether it's Medicare for all, uh, whether it's going to be pre existing conditions are just campaign talking points and allow our nation to continue to avoid embracing what needs to happen. That will be painful in the transition, but I actually believe better for patients and better for care providers in the long run.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I have a lot of, of interest in what's going to happen with this Amazon Berkshire Chase um, uh, initiative uh, because I believe the marketplace does produce better solutions uh, because it doesn't constrain itself with bureaucracy. Um, but we we're going to we're going to run out of time again as we always do so we'll have to defer uh, an in-depth discussion about prescription drugs um to another sunday morning but you know you serve on this bipartisan congressional task force on delivery system reform is that a myth or does is there really any interest in congress and and you can name names if you want um, in in really digging into and beginning to create the the conditions under which the marketplace could begin this transformation. Do do you see any any real an interest in Congress in a bipartisan approach to fixing the underlying issues of cost and availability?
2: I don't see any interest really on either side at getting involved at the level that would be necessary to change the delivery system. I can't finish this uh, conversation, we can continue it more in the future, without talking about drugs as an example. Drug companies are the number one contributors to campaign funding. They spend over $150 million in the first half of this year on lobbying and campaign contributions. It is no surprise that all the legislation passed has been in favor of the pharmaceutical world and against the consumer. It has allowed drug companies to raise their uh, prices two, three, five hundred percent with impunity. It's given that prolonged patent protection It's discouraged importation, it what's called biosimilars, a very large drug. Insulin now costs a hundred dollars for a uh, vial rather than uh, it should be uh, half or a quarter of that people are having to cut the amount of life-saving insulin uh-huh. they give because they can't afford
1: it and and you know what? There should be a law against that but they're telling me we got to go to commercial break and we'll be back in just a moment to with a few closing thoughts with Dr. Pearl
0: To reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on eight hundred and sixty AM, the answer.
1: And we're back with Doctor Robert Pearl. And just in summary, um, we're going to have to have another conversation about drugs and drug pricing, which is, I believe, twenty percent of the total of that three trillion dollars. Um, but just in a in a minute or so. Um, is there anything that you that we can do as individuals um, that will begin to um, change the trajectory of cost?
2: Well, a lot we can do as individuals to change the trajectory of cost. The first thing we can do is take better care of ourselves. We can eat better, exercise, uh, use opportunities to bring our weight into the normal, normal range. Uh, we get the preventive services that we require. Uh, we can do a lot of things to select a health system that will focus on keeping us healthy rather than simply uh, treating us when our problems uh, happen. We can look for people who have an advanced comprehensive electronic health record. So we are certain that our information is available at every point of contact, There are many things we can do as individuals. We also can ask legislators tough questions. Ask them, how much money do you take from drug companies every year? Ask them whether they support LeapFrog's independent analysis of minimum volumes for procedures and would consider not paying through Medicare for those uh, facilities that don't meet the standards needed to achieve the best results. Ask them uh, whether they would be willing to look at opportunities to force drug companies and hospitals to actually make costs transparent. Now I don't believe that these things on their own will lead to improvements, but they will now force what I often call in and the legacy players, the ones invested in the status quo, to start to do the things that are going to improve care for individuals. Demand in your health care that which you would insist on everywhere else in your life, built in retail, in travel. We're talking about video. We're talking about the ability to secure message and email physicians. There's so many things, Joyce, that we can do. But, as in so many areas, we have to be activists on our behalf. We have to demand that which we, I believe, are entitled to. The American health care system today is broken. Patients are mistreated. We have 200,000 medical errors killing patients every year. Another couple hundred thousand people dying from lack of prevention, complications from chronic disease and yet we keep telling ourselves it's the best system in the world. It may be a good system compared to some of the very poor countries that exist, but the outcomes we achieve are not particularly good. Together, I believe, Joyce, we can move American health care forward, but it's going to require major changes, going to require disruption, going to require breaking some of the links, particularly the drug companies with the elected officials, It will demand change, and I'm hoping your listeners will help lead that effort to make American health care great again.
1: And we're going to continue to have these periodic conversations in order to help them to ask those questions and take those initiatives. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time again this morning. We're going to get together again soon and talk about that prescription drug uh, uh, world, which is uh, just this side of criminal. But in the 30s...
2: 30... I can't wait. I tell all you listeners, make sure you vote, because that is a right that we have and a responsibility for all Americans.
1: And you're, you're absolutely right. In California, it's so easy to vote. It, there is no excuse not to. And we'll be back next Sunday to remind you to vote... But we'll have with us David French from the National Review. And we're going to talk specifically about how talking points are used to manipulate your vote. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Don't forget to vote. And if you need help with the propositions, go to reimagineamerica.org. We've got a summary up there that will help you uh, to fill out that ballot.